Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor, it's another week. Dr. Robin, you have taken one more official trip around the sun since the last time we we shared the the microphone with our listeners. Yeah, and I think I'm still tired from staying up till 1 a.m. Look, I was proud of you. I mean, for any of you that have heard Robin and I talk over the last six months about our adventures in a variety of settings, you will know that normally I am the uh, one that is uh, that tends to stay up later and that tends to continue to uh, party into the evening. I mean, it's the seven in me. I don't want to miss anything. I have major FOMO anytime right. I'm not in right. the middle of, of, of everything that's happening. Um, but I was really proud of you. You were, you were like a 1am birthday human. And I was like, I was living for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my bedtime is at like nine and I'm pretty religious about going to bed at nine because I believe a good 12 hour sleep gives me the beauty rest that I need. (laughs) Of course. Um, (laughs) and, um, I, yeah, I feel like I'm still dragging my feet from staying up till 1 a.m. on Thursday. And yesterday was such a lazy day um, for me. I ended up taking a two-hour siesta. And I thought, okay, On top of I'm your 12-hour ready- bookend sleeps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, along with my 12-hour sleep. Right. And I'm like, okay, surely I'm recovered from Thursday night. But let me tell you, I already forgot how old I am. Well, look, the older you get, the harder it is. I'm t- it yeah. just gets worse. It, the older yeah. you get, the more you will realize that math is your friend and yeah. you will start to say to yourself, okay, wait a minute. What year was I born? What year is it now? Has my birthday yeah. already happened? And you will find yourself taking a few extra seconds to answer the question of how old are yeah. you? Because you have to do the math in your head. Yeah. Well, the what tripped me up was... I was scrolling Instagram and I saw JJ Peterson. He also has a birthday in July and he turned 45. So then I got confused. How old am I? (laughs) (laughs) And I I said to Aaron, I was like, now how old am I? Am I 45 or 44? And Aaron was like, what number president was Obama? (laughs) I'm like, oh, right. 44. Okay, good. That's how I'm going to remember it. But what I'm concerned about is when I turn 45, I don't want to think about our current president right now. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You will have to, you will, you will do like I do when people ask me how old I am, uh, that I'm on the X anniversary of my 30th birthday or the, yes. <laughs> and just, you'll just make them do the math instead of saying the word 45. Cause I'm with you. Yes. I don't ever want to yes. use the word 45 in a sentence for the rest of my days. Yes. Speaking of the, the, I I just wish you would put down Twitter. I know. Well, I wish you would put down Twitter and I wish, 
um, that all of the things that we have been worried about happening would stop coming true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when that tweet went out last week, 157,000 people have died now from yes. COVID-19. Yeah. And he wants to talk about postponing the, le- the election. Right. Oh, Lord. What were you saying when that tweet went out? Well, yeah, no, it's fine. When the tweet went out about postponing the election, I thought, here we go. Right. Here we go. Like all the things that we have been worried about happening. He's setting the stage. He's he's doing it. He's he's trying to figure out a way to to make it happen. Yeah, these are very scary times. They are. They are, you know, um, we have talked a little bit about um, some of the challenges happening here in Chattanooga um, over the last few weeks. And um, I, I will only mention this because some of our listeners have been kind of paying attention with what's going on here from a pandemic standpoint and a, yep. and a protest standpoint. Um, you know, when our mask mandate went into play uh, a week or a, a, a month ago, um, our sheriff's department, our, our sheriff of the county said that he would comply with the mask mandate and and recognize that people needed to comply and, and was going to um, hold people accountable for not wearing masks, right. which was a right. good thing because our city police chief didn't say that. He said, like, yes, we want him to do it, but I'm not going to issue any citations. Well, this past Friday, one of the Tennessee political candidates showed up for a 300 person fundraiser in our convention center and who was standing in a group of um unmasked uh potential covid carrying republicans but the sheriff mm-hmm. um it was it was like a super spreader event that happened right here in chattanooga and it's just got everybody up in arms it's like you know, political between political rallies um, and this nonsense of you know forcing protesters off the street. Um, I, I'm 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 having a hard time living here right now. Well, what gets me is two things. One is I I read somewhere that the reason why there wasn't more of a federal testing um, plan or strategy. Mm-hmm was because the administration heard that the coronavirus was hitting blue states. Right. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, um, because there's a failure of leadership at every level in the administration. But what gets me is that it se- that type of logic seems to have emboldened the GOP to somehow be immune from this deadly virus right and now like the event that you mentioned now gop members are having events and potentially infecting people like why i mean it just feels very simple why can't we be kind and protect public health right you know, we'll talk up we'll talk a little bit about this with our guest, I'm sure. But I have to wonder if this is once again um a kind of an intentional planned um process. I mean, you know, we know that supremacist culture is working the exact way that the system was set up to work. Right. Um, you know, we have a we have a, a federal government who 
minimized assistance to predominantly blue states, states that in most in almost every instance would have, from an election standpoint, gone to the Democratic challenger of our current of our current president. Mm-hmm. Now you have a Senate um, who is unwilling to extend uh, a Senate and, and a House, the House unwilling to vote to extend benefits and to uh, extend the rent and mortgage moratorium. Right. Um, which disproportionately affects people of color, indigenous folk, brown folk, black folk, all people who potentially have the, the possibility of losing an, a mailing address between mm-hmm. now and the election, making mm-hmm. them ineligible to cast a vote. Yeah. The voter suppression is real. It's real. And and it's and it continues and it continues to happen. And lest we think that this is not part of a plan, um, mm-hmm. I think we I think we've all lost our minds. Yeah, I mean, I just think about the area where I live, um, which is about eleven hundred apartments, and I think about um you know, the the rent moratorium, the fact that this apartment complex was working with people, you know, now they don't have to work with people. And so right. and I'm, how many I, of your neighbors are going to be unable to pay this month? Right. Right. So mm-hmm. I I worry about that. I also worry that the, the the neighborhood where I live is filled with essential workers. Yes. And um are we doing the kind thing for essential workers to ensure their health and safety in the public? And when there are these events, these political events where mostly GOP people show up without wearing a mask, I have to say that, no, you are not protecting the essential workers and not, not doing the, you know, I always talk about how do we how do we be better humans to one another? Right. Well, we are not practicing that virtue. Correct. Correct. So I could go on and on. This is the perfect kind of conversation that we need to have with the person that's going to be joining us today. I'm so excited. Um, we're really excited, friends, that we get to welcome into this conversation activist and author Tim Wise. Um, Tim will not be a new voice to many of you. Many of you will have um, read Tim's writings, uh, seen him on uh, a variety of of television programs talking about anti-racist work. Um, One of the things that we do want to recognize is that um, we know we we Robin and I know that when we bring voices of privilege like Tim's into this space, um, specifically people like Tim who are cis and straight and white, um, that we acknowledge that this type of invitation can seem problematic to some of you. We want you to know that we recognize this. We're really intentional about these invitations, and we do so only when the space that these persons represent hold what we believe is a necessary conversation for us to have. Um, All of our guests that fit into uh, this category um, have been 
we are looking deeply at how they're divesting of their privilege and patriarchy within their organizations, within the work they do, within the writings that they put into the world. Um, and so we just want you all to know that we recognize this and that we want you to continue to be in conversation with us about, about this as we navigate our space. Um, and having said that, um, we're, we're really excited to welcome Tim Wise to today's podcast. Hi there, Tim. Hey, how are you? We are great. We are great. How are you today? Well, uh, you know, on a on a purely personal level, um, I'm I'm good. Uh, you know, the the culture of lockdown, uh, unfortunately, obviously, given the reasons for it, uh, is is awful, and uh, certainly don't want to diminish that. But as a uh, you know, as a confirmed introvert, uh, staying inside is fine with me. So I just don't. <laughs> Oh I don't go anywhere anyway. You know, I I don't go anywhere. I mean, if I'm traveling, I go places. But when I'm home, I I don't do anything. So this is just yeah. like the world catching up to my uh, lifestyle, I guess. Oh, man. Yeah, you know, I, people ask me all the time, how's quarantine life going? And I'm like, it's real easy for me to be a hermit. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm also an intense introvert. And if I can have my books and my couch or my chair or my bed um, and read – I'm fine. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. And by the way, I heard in the setup, you talking about going to bed, Robin, at nine o'clock. I'm right there with you also, by the way. that, <laughs> that That's another thing. You can just sleep. You know, I mean, yeah. just sleep is awesome. So, yeah, I'm getting more of it than normal. Oh, y'all cracking me up. I, I am missing um, vomitous explosions and of glitter and rainbows and <laughs> hugging all the people all the time, um, drinking with random strangers, meeting people that I've never met before and in five minutes feeling as if I've known them forever. Um, See, I'm I, tired of just hearing about that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> let alone doing it, but like right. hearing that, I'm exhausted. Now I need to go take yes. a nap. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, you guys can take a nap in about, let's say, 50 minutes. <laughs> um, Tim, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I know that we both run in the same circles with Speak Out and doing lots of justice-oriented work on campus campuses and universities. I'd love to hear your story. I mean, and you've done a wide variety of things and are one of the most prominent anti-racist educators that we have. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of your story of, and I know you've written about this um, in your books, but for those who haven't had access to your books and who are now going to go out and buy them after they hear you on this podcast, can you share with us a little bit about the story that shaped you into what you're doing now? Sure. Well, you know, I grew up uh, here in Nashville where I live again now and have for the last 20, gosh, I'm, I'm bad at the math piece too. I heard y'all joking about <laughs> age earlier. I moved back in 1996, so uh, 24 years that I've been back mm -hmm. here after, after living in New Orleans for 10. And, um, you know, I think I always start there because I think that um, growing up in the South uh, had a lot to do with how I ended up where I am. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I think we all know that the South, obviously, from a political and ideological perspective, is a more, quote unquote, conservative, even reactionary area. But what I've discovered, and it's certainly true for me, is that 
if you come through this region, if you if you are from the South and you were born and reared here and you end up on the left, nonetheless, and you end up progressive or left on, you know, or radical in spite of having grown up in an area where that's not normal, quote unquote, um, it is almost certain that you will have gotten to that destination through the crucible of race. Um, mm-hmm. Because in the South, we know far better than than white folks in other parts of the United States, at least in my experience, that race is the background noise of everything that happens. You know, I'd say it's the background noise of everything that happens in the North and in the Midwest and West Coast as right. well. It's just that white folks there don't always know it. And, right. and we do because nobody would let us forget it. And, uh, and I'm right. sort of grateful for that. And so I was raised by a family, um, parents who were a little bit too young to have been activist in the 60s struggle, just a, a year or two too young to have been able to get permission, I suppose, from their folks to do it. And my mom would never have gotten permission in any event. My dad might have, but he was a little bit too young. So I was born in 1968. And, um, you know, I grew up as a, as a child of integration in the Nashville schools. But even before that, you know, went to preschool at a historically black college here in Nashville at Tennessee State. And so I was in the early childhood education program in a, in a you know, program in 1971, 72, where like 25 kids and probably only three of us weren't black. And the mm. women that ran the program were mostly African-American women. And I think that having that experience, number one, being in a non-dominant environment early on and being socialized in a different kind of, you know, setting from most white folks then for sure. And I would say even now. And then secondly, being subordinated to black authority and black women in particular in the early 1970s at the age of four, Mm -hmm. let's say, I think was a very big deal because what it meant is sort of primed me to perhaps see some things that other white folks wouldn't have been likely to see, you know? So when I go to elementary school and I'm in Nashville, 1974, I start first grade and, and that's just right at the beginning really of true desegregation. I mean, you know, Brown v. Board is 1954, but Nashville Mm -hmm. doesn't start busing until 1971. And it's really only around 1974 that it fully filters down to the elementary school level. So in a very real sense, I'm, you know, one of the first graduating classes to have been fully integrated in Nashville when I graduated in 1986. Mm. And when I start school, because of that preschool experience with black kids at TSU, I'm able to see perhaps when they're getting treated differently by teachers, you know, when they're getting disciplined or they're getting placed in remedial level classes because those are my friends. That's who I identify with. And I'm having a hard time putting it together. Now, I'm not going home that first week of school at the age of five and six and saying to my mom, oh, my God, mom, you will not believe the institutional white supremacy at Burton School. Right. Because I was not quite that hip, you know, but but I knew something was going on. And so I'm filing it away, filing it away. And many years later, when I go to New Orleans for college and I'm seeing I'm and I'm at Tulane, which is a incredibly white institution in the midst of a black city, black, both demographically and culturally and politically. And the contrast is just huge for me. I mean, Tulane was like the whitest place I had ever been. Because the schools that I went to here in Nashville were like 40, you know, 40, 45 percent black, mostly. Um, and so you get to Tulane and and it's just whiteness in a lot of ways surrounded by a black city and feeling really out of place at the school and, and, and having amazing mentors there. And then finally getting out into public housing communities where I was a community organizer after I graduated um, and, and working with black women whose authority I had learned to respect at the age of four. 
you know, right. and I think I think the problem for a lot of white folks is if you're never subordinated to black authority, once a black person tries to tell you what's up, your inclination is to say, well, now, wait a minute. Are you sure? Mm, you know, yes. or might you might you be hallucinating? You know, might mm. you be exaggerating? But at the age of four, I was told to respect black authority. And I think it was a huge gift that my mom gave me by putting me in in that preschool. And there's a lot of other aspects to that story. But I think to me, that's the foundational piece is I was I was set up to see some things and I'm very thankful for that. You know, it's interesting you share that because I am born of a Mexican immigrant who is a brown woman. Mm -hmm. She married a white man and I have, I'm melanin deficient. But what she did was have me around women of color at an early age. Mm -hmm. And I also learned the same thing that they're, and I didn't know that I was different until my mother asked me, does anyone ever make fun of me of my skin color because of my skin color? So, and that was about five or six. But early on, as, as a young kid, I was around women of color and I, I just like, that's how I was socialized to um, respect, learn and value these women. And, and, and so growing up then, in predominantly white institutions, um, I questioned the authority in front of me because it wasn't what I was most familiar with. Right. <laughs> Which is interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I love, I love that we have that in common and I love that, um, that's such a central part of your story. Um, is, is that what motivated you or compelled you to become an anti-racist educator or where does that come into play? Right. Well, I would say that was the foundation that made it possible for me to then see the things that led me to make that choice. So obviously, you know, I, I still, some other stuff had to happen. I mean, ultimately when I go to New Orleans, I go to Tulane for college, you know, I go down there with no, I mean, obviously I had, you know, progressive and, and left race politics, but I, I didn't know that I was going to do that kind of work. I had no idea. I was in international relations uh, specialization within poli sci as far as my major. And I was a Latin American studies minor. Um, and the only reason I was a minor is because I'm really lazy, didn't know Spanish and didn't want to take the time to learn it in order for it to right. be a major. So I just minored in it, which is, you know, the typical sort of slacker uh, attitude that I had about school at the time. But I just sort of thought, you know, I didn't know that I was going to do race related work. Um, But being in New Orleans and that contrast between Tulane and the city and I was doing anti-apartheid work, uh, as many people were in the 80s around South Mm -hmm. Africa. And um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, there were some incredible activists there in New Orleans who became mentors of mine, but people who, you know, were very... uh, (laughs) I, I would say patient, but they weren't always patient. And I'm grateful for that. And they were very good about sort of tapping me on the shoulder, either literally or, or figuratively speaking and saying, hey, you know, this thing you're doing about apartheid in South Africa, that is really awesome. And by the way, um, could we just point you in this direction over here so yeah. you can perhaps uh, link it to the apartheid that's happening down the road? You know, yeah. because yeah. in every sense, New Orleans was uh, an apartheid city. And I remember uh, still is. Very, it still is definitely. And the, uh, the very last month or so of, of my senior year, which was academic year, 89, 90, so this is like April of 1990. Um, you know, we're, we're having a forum. We're in the middle of a hunger strike. We're camped out in front of the administration building, hadn't eaten in like four days, try to get the school to divest. And we are doing this public forum. And at the end, 
of the forum, there's a young black woman who had come over from Xavier University, uh, not the not the one in Cincinnati that most people know, but the black Catholic school that's down the road from from Tulane there in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Great, great school. And uh, this young woman had come over to the forum. She's from New Orleans. She gets up in the Q&A and she says, you know, uh, I'm really glad y'all are doing this work, obviously trying to get Tulane to divest from South Africa. That's great. But she says, Tim, let me ask you a question. Um, how long have you been here? And I said, well, I've been here, you know, for four years. She says, okay, so in the four years that you've been here, can you tell me one thing you've done to address apartheid in this city since after all you benefit from it? Mm. And mm. I just remember it was like, you know, it was, it was, it, you just knew you were busted. I knew in that moment yeah. that I was, you know, and, and I came up with some just awful, awful answer, which was something along the lines of, you know, picking your battles and, you know, it was just some just absolutely crappy thing to say. And she just sort of looked at me and nodded and, you know, with this look of recognition that I hadn't quite thought this through. Mm. And I just remember afterward realizing that there had been a lot of privilege in choosing South African white supremacy to address. Not that that was wrong. Like that was important, obviously. Yeah. You know, we needed to talk about it. But the fact that I wasn't, I wasn't drawing the connections between that and what was going on in the city, in spite of the fact that literally like two days before that forum, the New Orleans Police Department had just murdered a black man named Adolf Archie, who they suspected of killing one of their own. They took him, they threw him in the back of a police wagon. They drove him around the city, beat the crap out of him, broke every bone in his face, dumped him at the front of the charity hospital where he ultimately dies. And the coroner report said that he died as a result of a homicide by police intervention. That was the official mm -hmm. cause of death. So that had literally just happened. But we're talking about Cape Town and Soweto. Mm. And we're talking about, again, legitimate issues, but not sure. making the connection. And I think when that happened, it was a huge light bulb. And then literally that year, I come back after I graduated and David Duke, you know, former Klan leader, lifelong modern Nazi white supremacist was running for yeah. the US Senate. And then 91, he ran for governor and I was involved in the campaigns against him. And when I saw 675,000 white people in that governor's race, 605,000 in the Senate race the year before, but you know, 600 to 700,000 white people vote for him. It was obvious to me that there weren't 600 or 700,000 Nazis in oh. the state of Louisiana, but there were that many white people who were in such pain in their lives that they were willing to vote for a guy who was that because he promised to make their lives better by cracking down on black people. So that was oh. the final straw to me was, you know, I have to work with my people because the only reason we didn't get a Nazi for a senator or for governor was because black people saved us. And at some point I was like, look, but white folk, we can't rely on black people to save us. That's not their yeah. job. We got to save us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we watched the same thing happen, you know, three and a half years ago. Um, right. And, you know, our, our younger listeners, you know, may not have the perspective of David Duke's run and, and the way that, um, you know, his candidacy was informed, but, um, they have a real life lesson, you know, playing out in front of them over the last four years in the United States of exactly what that looks like when it doesn't go the way of people of color being able to, as you as you said it, save, save yeah. the save the day. Right. So I'm wondering as we I mean, you know, I am for our listeners recognize and, and know that I because I come at this space as a, a white woman who um, 
has come at this work much later in life, um, really over the last decade. Um, and I mean, you know, I, I was one of those white folks who um, grew up and, and from a teenage standpoint, really like could have, I could be the exact opposite of who I am today. Like really any number of small decisions could have taken me, taken my life and my understanding of race in a, in a completely different direction. Um, yeah. And one of the questions that Robin and I often have is what role, do, what role should white people play in the movement at this time? You know, what, what is the role of um, anti-racist educators who are white and, and bring their privilege and the supremacist culture that has raised them um, to the work? How, how do you see, um, specifically for you and I, how, how, what our role is in this work at this moment, um, you know, knowing what we know and seeing what we're seeing both from a political lens and from a science lens in these, in these moments? So uh, I think there are two things. One is uh, part of the role has to be remembering that if you're white and you're doing this work, you have to be not, and you're trying to be an educator, a quote unquote teacher of others. You also have to position yourself as a student. Yes. Um, because ultimately, and you know, and I already alluded to it with the backstory that I gave you, the mentors that I had in New Orleans who brought me to a place of really understanding whatever it is that I understand. And like all of us, you know, still in the process of always learning, but, but whatever it is that I think I know now, um, I know in large measure because of those teachers and mentors of color, some of them with, you know, fancy letters after their names, but a lot of them without even high school diplomas. You yes. know, a lot of them, people that I met in public housing in the city of New Orleans with 10th and 11th grade educations or maybe high school diplomas, but no college who taught me more, you know, about the interactions of race and class, for instance in this country than I ever learned in a, in a class at Tulane. And it's not meant as a knock on my professors. They were great, but it's meant as a recognition that there's incredible wisdom in untapped and unexamined spaces. And so if we're going to, if we're going to be teachers, those of us who are white, we also have to be students. We have to be learners, particularly learners of the wisdom of black and brown folks. Um, yes. So that's number one, as far as the larger role, I think it's really important for us and I'm always trying to figure this out for myself, and I'm especially having this conversation with myself and others right now in this particular moment of such a huge uprising, is we have to figure out what our lane is going to be in this multi-lane movement. Because there are a lot of lanes, you know, that, that people are, are, are um, inhabiting and occupying. And I think the, the, what I've come to at this point is that I think the lane for white folks, first let me say what it's not. It's not the lane of trying to tell black truth or brown mm. truth, right? In other words, we don't need white folks, myself or other white folks, to write books or articles or give speeches that are essentially about, you know, racism's impact on black and brown people because they tell that story. I mean, that's mm. their story. A, it's their story to tell. B, it's a story they tell better than we can tell it because it's their experience. So I'm not saying we don't ever bring up like 
any data or statistics or, or points in regard to that. But we don't need to be writing books about black and brown folks. We don't need mm-hmm. to be telling mm-hmm. stories that are not ours to tell, because no matter how well we tell them, we can't tell them as well. And so the job there is to point people in the direction of those who are saying those things, telling those stories and providing that education. But the lane that we can inhabit is to start examining, and this is something we have been very loath to do, I think, as white activists up to this point, and that is to start exploring what white supremacy does to us and specifically what it has meant in our lives. And I don't just mean the privilege piece because that's part of it for sure. And I've talked about that for 25 or 30 years and am known for doing it. But but I'm talking about the damage of white supremacy, even to white people. Now, don't don't get confused by what I'm saying. I don't mean that is equivalent or the same to the harm that is done to black and brown peoples. Obviously, they are the victims and targets of white supremacy. But I insist that we are the collateral damage of it. And so when I see 675,000 white people in Louisiana vote for a Nazi, I want to know what is the source of that damage and how do I how, how, how can we as white people be accountable for that? Because because what that does to black folks and brown folks is 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 clearly measurable. We can see that in every indicator of well-being in this country. And it's their story to tell. And they're telling it amazingly uh, uh, well for all of us to hear. But what I don't think white folks have really explored is is what it has done, the, the sense of of expectation and entitlement that whiteness gives to white people, which usually can be fulfilled. Uh, That's what privilege is, but not always. And when it's not fulfilled, what do you do? Where do you put the pain? Where do you put the the disconnect between what you were promised and what you got? Because see, I would say those white folks that voted for Duke and more recently who voted for Trump, right? They were, I mean, we think of the opioid crisis as an actual pharmacological thing, but what is Donald Trump other than a human opiate, right? Mm -hmm. What is other than a walking, talking opiate who says, I can take away your pain. And, and that pain, whether it's economic dislocation, cultural enemy, fear of change, whatever the hell it is, the pain is real. The problem is white folks are misdiagnosing it because white supremacy has encouraged us to misdiagnose yeah. our own pain, just like you have a headache, go to Google to figure out if you got a tumor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and we need desperately, I think, as white folks to be challenging that damage because that is ours. And it wouldn't make sense for black folks to tell that story. You know, black folks got to save themselves from white supremacy. But just like I wondered after David Duke, who is going to save white people from the mess that we've made of ourselves spiritually, philosophically, ideologically, or, or, or concretely in our lives as a result of this system of, you know, uh, expectation and privilege? Because I think it's incredibly toxic, just like I think patriarchy and misogyny, uh, you know, and toxic masculinity is not just destructive, obviously, for those who are not men, it is destructive for men. And mm-hmm. and I think men need to be thinking deeply about that, too, as a way of self-help. You know, white supremacy, I guess I'm saying is it's not just homicidal, it's suicidal. And I think if yeah. white folks would spend some time talking about that, that would be a good lane for us to stay in. You know, Tim, I think a lot about this, about... Um, what type of work should white people be doing? I love how you um, help us see that um, there are not just two lanes here, but it's um, a multi-lane highway. And, you know, I've often, I've often thought that white folks have depended upon in particular black folks and other people of color 
to educate white folks on how they should be better white folks. Yeah, right. That there's that dynamic, right, of, well, I'll just, I'll read a book, um, I'll let black people tell me how I should behave, and um, and that will solve the problem. Right. It doesn't actually get to the cultural pain that I think you speak to, and it creates this dynamic of, once again, that we have through slavery where black people are the mammy for white people. Yeah. Right. And um, that's a very toxic dynamic that um, we need to figure out how to dismantle because no longer should we be dependent on the labor of black people, indigenous people, or other people of color in the same way that slavery created. Um, so I just want to say that to say even that dynamic is rooted in pain. Right. And rooted in an estrangement of ourselves. I, I've been thinking lately about intimacy and the fact that in supremacy culture actually eviscerates intimacy. It doesn't, it, there, there are no conditions for white people in particular to be intimate or white passing people who have been socialized into whiteness. Yeah. There's no capacity for intimacy. Yeah. And and our testament to the virtue of freedom and liberation will be whether or not we can learn to be intimate with ourselves and with one another, I think. Right. Right. That's an incredibly important point. And and let me say two things about it. One is I, I would go back to the piece the thing you said about dependency on black and brown folks. This is so crucial because right now, you know, there are these sort of conflicting narratives that people are hearing, right? One is that white folks need to shut up and listen, understandably, right, to, to black right. and brown folks. But on the other hand, the really critical point you're making, which is if you're not careful, that does become putting a burden on black and brown folks to be our teachers, right? right. It, it, it's sort of like, you know, shut up and listen to us, but we shouldn't have to teach you. And people are like, well, wait, which is it? Which is it? Well, it's sort of both, right? Right. But but you just have to be careful about not becoming that person who says, oh, t please help me help you, right? <laughs> like, right. Like there's a learned helplessness, right? That, yeah. that whiteness, that white supremacy has done to white folks, which is fascinating that the most powerful people on the planet can be so helpless when it comes yeah. to finding information. But then that leads to the intimacy piece. The only way that we really stitch that back together again, in my estimation, is by realizing that a huge part of this work is not just the obviously political. I mean, I think everything's political, right? But what we think of as political, which mm -hmm. is the, the, the movement work, being in the street, going to the demo, whatever it is, it, there's, there's also a relational piece that we have to rebuild because yeah. it is the lack of intimacy and connection and relationship that, that allows us to fall in and out of this work. Like the political mm -hmm. stuff might get you in it for a while, right? Because it's really heady and it's a big deal and you feel like you're part of something huge. And, you know, we always meet those people. And I was one of those people at one point too, that was like, oh, I wish I'd been around in the 60s. How mm -hmm. great would that have been, right? But that's an unhealthy attitude, number one, because you're here now and you're needed. And number right. two, because, because that's sort of fetishizing a particular time and place 
And and it's also not what you know what we think of as the 60s. Most of the work that really made a difference was not the stuff we see on TV. It was not the stuff in the streets. It was not the stuff that got headlines. It was the behind the scenes organizing the meetings in church basements that went on for eight hours at a time to, right. to strategize how to bring down apartheid. And my concern is that if people come to this work through their politics or through, you know, the outrage of the moment, a, the murder of George Floyd on camera, for instance, I don't know that that is sustainable. In fact, I suspect it is not sustainable. It's like the, it's like the bonfire that consumes the wood so quickly that it burns out, right? I am, yeah. I am much more concerned about the intimacy piece because for me, and I suspect this is based on your backstory uh, that you shared earlier too, just that piece of it, it's similar for you. I don't come to anti-racism through my politics. Mm-hmm. I come to my politics through anti-racism, but my yeah. anti-racism is because of my personal connection. It was playing baseball on a team where I was one of only two or three white kids on a mostly black team and going out to a rural area outside of Nashville when we were 10 or 11 years old and having a team of white kids refuse to play us because we were a black team. And then as we tried to leave surrounding the car and screaming racial slurs at the kids, myself very much included, um, that's, that's how I come to my anti-racism right. was because of that. And then the sad thing is that intimacy that I had at 10 and 11 with those friends did not last. Why? Because whiteness began to separate us in middle school, in high school and throughout life so that we then ended up losing touch as so many people do because our lives are shaped so differently by these factors that we don't understand fully. And so yeah. until we restitch that connection, we're going to have a, 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 a lot harder time sustaining anti-racist movement. You know, you make a great point about coming to anti-racism work, whether through relationship or through politics. And I think academics who are trying to make an intervention into this world and as a as an academic myself who keeps leaving academia, but keeps being wooed back. Um, I have a complicated relationship with academia, but academics are um, producing or creating talking points that many white people latch onto and, and also are, are on television, um, on the shows on MSNBC and CNN. And academics have these talking points that actually don't deal with the the paradigm shift that that I want to advocate for, which is trading in the transactions of white supremacy for a more relational approach so that we can create conditions for intimacy. And I yeah. worry, um, I know that there was and has been a lot of sort of upheaval around Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. And there's been a lot of critique around how this academic, this particular white woman academic has peddled anti quote unquote, anti-racism in a way that actually disenfranchises both white people and people of color from being in relationship. And That is very interesting to think about that we could, we all could actually be doing harm producing work in the name of anti-racism. Yeah, we could be. I mean, you know, let me say this. I mean, I, I, I know Robin and I consider her, you know, a friend and I did blurb the book because I think it has 
it has value uh, as a lot of work does, even though I have a critique of it. And even though I have differences, significant differences with the way that I do the work relative to Robin. But I do think that that criticism is a, is a really important one to hear, just like it's important for me to hear uh, similar critiques of my work, uh, whether it's books or articles or speeches or whatever else it might be. And I think that's part of figuring out how to get it right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and I, and I, and I suspect, uh, even though no one likes to hear their work critiqued, I mean, we all have ego needs and nobody yeah. likes to be criticized. Right. But, but I, I suspect, and from what I know of Robin, she, you know, is trying to take in those critiques and, and, and think about how she can do the work better, uh, as well. But I do think part of the problem, right, is we have a publishing industry and we have a larger sort of culture that does tend to gravitate towards academics, right? And mm-hmm. towards people with the letters after their name or right. towards people who were just particularly, um, you know, polished in front of a camera or something. And so, you know, those of us who, who have gotten a lot of experience, I mean, I've had a lot of experience in front of cameras being interviewed for stuff for literally 30 plus years. So, yeah. I've gotten decent at it. Like I've gotten to a point where I'm pretty good at it. And therefore I will get called pretty often, not, not all the time, but relatively often to, to be on a show or to be interviewed because the folks who were the producers, right. Know that I can give right. good sound bites or good analysis. And, th- and there's a time and a place for that, but it's also really important that we create space for people who have different not only styles of communicating, but just different kind of stuff to say, right? And mm-hmm. stuff that may or may not fit within an academic analysis or may or may not fit within a, a sort of standard way of thinking about an issue. And right now, the problem is we have a media culture that is set up for people like Robin, people like me, and even black and brown folks who have a particular style of mm-hmm. presenting, right? Like a particular way of doing it and knowing, oh, I've got to do it in 60 seconds or I've got to do mm-hmm. it in 30 seconds or right. whatever. Even even the folks of color you see uh, in usually being interviewed are folks who cue to that kind of style. And what we really need is to create some space for people who have different ways of communicating. And, and that's how we're going to also change the narrative, I think. And we don't do enough yeah. of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems as if, I mean, the examples you just gave, Tim, you know, speak to the transactional nature of the work, right? I mean, everything that is, that goes into, um, you know, our, our media, our, um, our work in the world. I mean, if, if we are doing it from a transactional standpoint, we're not going to, land ourselves on anything sustainable, whereas the relationship piece will. I mean, I I am highly, highly suspicious and really quite worried of the messages that we have in the world right now, you know, regarding the election in November. Now, look, I mean, I am someone who desperately wants to see um, you know, this narcissist in chief taken out of the seat of power that he is in. However, um, you know, we have um, put this concept of voting um, in this upcoming election as the one singular thing that that needs to happen in order for us to arrive, in order for us to kind of make it to this point where um, we can sit back and, and take some deep breaths, when in actuality... You know, the fact that we vote and the fact that we kind of just continue with the democratic process is the transactional piece of the work. If we think for a second that an election of Joe Biden, whether you think that he's the right person or not, 
is going right. to change the trajectory of this transactional um you know, misnomer within anti-racist work, I mean, you're, you're dead wrong. Um, we, in the same way that, you know, cities that, that shifted their narrative in, you know, May or in, in June from fighting to get the police officers that killed George Floyd arrested and, and, and moved into a conversation over what needs to happen in our cities, in our spaces to defund police forces, to reallocate right. resources. I mean, the moment that we grab on to things that are, that are ancillary and not related to the piece, the, the relationship piece of this work is the moment that we lose sight of the fact that all of these things are just simply one more kind of notch on a bedpost of supremacist culture, making us think that the one next thing that we are able to get right is going to be the thing that saves us. Right. Well, I mean, the good news is, uh, if there is any, is that I think this this last, let's say, decade has demonstrated for us, you know, because there were obviously people who, when Obama won the first time and then was reelected, they, they were very much in that space that you're describing now of thinking, oh, well, we've sort of arrived and the work is done right, and right. You know, we just have to sort of tinker around the edges. Now, the, the good news, if there is any, about the current administration is that they have certainly disabused us of that nonsense. Like, I think that there are <laughs> right. millions of people, right, who clearly, and you don't hear anyone saying we're post-racial anymore. Like, nobody says right. that shit. Like, we're all right. beyond that, right? So, so number one, yeah, you're absolutely right that that danger is always present. And it is also true, number two, that we have a little bit of a booster shot against that, just in the sense that we can remember how, how, how wrong that idea was right. as recently as four or five years ago. So, so I'm hoping that booster shot lasts and provides immunity you know, long enough right. to get it through, right? The, the, the good news is I think it will, at least for a while. The bad news is, yes, we are still a culture that, that very much places the emphasis on the transactional electoral process at the expense of the the more, I guess, the deeper relational work that has to go on on the 364 days that are not called election day. Right. And that's not to downgrade the importance of elections. Look, people who think voting doesn't matter at all, like, I mean, I get very, very tired of of the sort of, you know, pseudo revolutionaries who say things like, well, if voting mattered, man, they'd make it illegal. Yeah, they're trying to make it illegal right. for millions yeah. of people. So just shut up. You know, I don't yeah. want to hear your I don't want to hear your silly sort of, oh, man, it doesn't matter. And the lesser of two evils is still evil. Yeah, I get yeah. that. And so is the fact that I type on a typewriter that was made by slave labor and the fact that, you know, all of agriculture pretty much is under capitalism is created in in exploitative ways like no kidding. We participate in evil every day. Elections are harm reduction. It's yes. like giving clean needles to addicts and it doesn't solve the problem of addiction, but it might save a few lives. The question is, what are we doing the other 364 days? And I absolutely agree that that we've got to be seeing elections in this moment, I think, as the thing that gives us the space to breathe and to make those connections. Right. Because yes. right now our problem is we can't even breathe in a in a political sense um, some, you know, the George Floyds of the world literally having their breath stolen from them, right, by, by law enforcement, but all of us in the culture sort of constantly going from crisis to crisis to crisis. 
if we can get Trump out of office, then there's at least the opportunity to say, okay, now let's sit down and let's really plan because we're not just it's not just crisis response. You know, sometimes you make good decisions in a crisis, but it'd be a lot better if we could say, all right, now let's plot this thing out. Let's plan what we're going to do when this next administration comes in which we know is going to be inadequate to the task. Mm-hmm. We, we right. fully know that, <laughs> right? right? We, we absolutely should take it for granted, but at least we will be in a situation where it's not constantly having to put out fires, mm-hmm. you know, every couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Mm. I saw this lovely, this lovely com- uh, political cartoon that was done um, after John Lewis's death. Um, and, you know, he's kind of walking across this rainbow bridge into heaven yeah. and carrying a sign that says vote. Um, and, and I had to think to myself, like, I don't know if that's the sign that John Lewis would be carrying. Like, it seems to me that John Lewis would be would be saying, you know, w- would be asking more of us um based on the trajectory of our lives, not based on the trajectory of the next three months. Um, And, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of where that, that came from. I think he would be saying vote, but that's just, vote and, yeah, it would be, there would be, there would be the three dots, you know, the internal ellipses after the vote and it would be, (laughs) right. And there's some other stuff you need to do. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, Tim, what's your relationship with, with religion or spirituality, because a lot of this work is informed by um, or inflected by spirituality. Sure. So I was raised, uh, I was raised Jewish and consider myself like a lot of, I think, American Jews, particularly those of us raised reform or reconstructionists, um, anything really other than Orthodox or conservative, we tend to view our Judaism more cultural and even political than religious. And I always certainly Mm -hmm. did. Um, actually left the temple at the age of 13 before I was bar mitzvahed. Uh, and I left in large part, well, I mean, there were multiple reasons. One was <laughs> they were telling me that I had to come to seven Friday night services per semester, or I was going to be held back in Hebrew school, which struck me as a very odd thing. Like you're, you're going to fail me in Hebrew school. And the rabbi said, yes. And I said, so wait a minute, you're telling me that theoretically I could be 37 years old sitting in a ninth grade Hebrew school class. And the rabbi said, well, theoretically, yes. And I said, well, then, so not theoretically, I quit, right? And I yeah. left. Uh, there was also the, the fact that I was, I was really conflicted even then um, and am still over the issue of Palestine. And I was yeah. very concerned about the way in which there was just this uncritical and I thought really somewhat mindless devotion to this nation state um, that I was being told that I should, that should, should possess or that I should manifest. And I just couldn't get my head around it. So so I left and, and, um, and I haven't really been part certainly of an organized religious community since I, I still, you know, I consider myself agnostic, but I, but I consider myself that, um, in large part, just because I'm very, un, I'm very comfortable with uncertainty and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm okay with ambiguity. And, um, so that is my spirituality is a spirituality of ambiguity. Essentially, mm-hmm. it is a sense of saying that I have absolutely no doubt that I do not know all there is to know. And I doubt very seriously that humans know all that there is to know or may ever know all that there is to know. And I'm okay with it. Um, So that is sort of where I am uh, with it. I think, you know, that um, for me, I think there is something that's inherently spiritual about trying to figure out, even from a humanistic place, 
where we fit in the world and what our role is in the world and what our obligations are to one another, whether we call it a spiritual thing or not. I think there is something about that that's sort of essentially spiritual because it's something that is beyond sort of the realm of just the the, the personal connections concretely that we have with other people. And it's something that connects us to people all around the planet. And so I think there's a piece of it that's that. But for me, it has always been sort of um, little bits and pieces of it here and there because I haven't, you know, it, it's been so alienating to me on yeah. an organized level, you know, yeah. that, that yeah. it's just been very difficult for me to growing up, especially in Nashville, where you know, being Jewish, I mean, there are about 5,000 Jews, I think, uh, rec- organized Jews, uh, recognized out Jews, if you will, in Nashville. Um, yeah. And, and you know, it was for me growing up, it was constantly ha- having teachers in public school, public school, uh, telling me that I was going to hell, you know, mm-hmm. trying to make me pray, uh, even though prayer had been outlawed uh, in public schools in 1962. But there was still this sort of attempt, right, to bring us into assemblies where we would have to listen to kids testify about their personal relationship with Jesus. And at the age of 11, you know, in my middle school or 12, I went and walked out of an assembly where they were trying to make us do that. And the principal cornered me and asked me where I was going. And and I said, well, I was going to call my lawyer. And he, and he said, you're 12. And you don't have a lawyer. And I said, oh, yeah, I do, which was a total yeah. bluff. But, you know, um, and and so my relationship has been a very defensive one with mm-hmm. regard to my religion and my spirituality for most of my life. You know, I so appreciate that um, orientation because in many ways, I also don't think that we have the epistemological capacity to know whether there is a God, uh, what is comprised of the world, et cetera. I mean, we have science to tell us some of that, yeah. but I I disavow and disidentify from institutional religion all the time because yeah. I think it is a concocted meaning making to um, subordinate people into a culture that doesn't question, that capitulates to supremacy cultures, yeah. and that doesn't promote freedom. And so I much, I mean, I love to think about meaning making and I love to think about how um spirituality that's a poor term maybe but how meaning making can actually revitalize some of our movement yeah around dismantling supremacy culture anti-racism etc and i i love some of the theological inventions from from all walks of life that are actually contributing to new forms of meaning making in ways that don't support institutionalized religion. And I think that if more people can participate in that kind of creative, constructive, out of the box thinking, um, we might be able to get a new fold of spirituality that actually invites people like you and me into that, that work. Right. Well, I mean, you know, this is a great time to reflect on that. I mean, here we are, you know, as, as you mentioned a second ago, um, we were talking about John Lewis. And um, you think back to 1960 here in Nashville and the role that James Lawson played, you know, in uh-huh. the in the training of those early activists. And here, here was a guy who and it was at Vanderbilt Divinity until they threw him out, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he was living a very different, for sure, different kind of Christian witness than what the folks at Vanderbilt wanted 
him to, mm-hmm. to do, which is why they wanted him out of there so badly. But what was that? It was a hybridization, really, of of some theological and spiritual and philosophical practices, including borrowing from Gandhi and nonviolent traditions and 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 frankly, borrowing from actual, you know, Christian traditions yeah. uh, as well. And 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 so I think that kind of spirituality, which at that time was clearly way ahead of its time here in the South and, and people were not ready for it, but, but it really, it made a huge, huge difference. That kind of thing, that kind of, of out of the box thinking where we're borrowing these, these, the best traditions and, and creating new traditions. And as you said, meaning making without having to be sort of devoted to a particular text or a particular mm-hmm. line or a particular way of thinking is obviously a much healthier space yeah. for us to be. And there's something James Baldwin said, and I used to, I used to have all this Baldwin like memorized in my head, but now as I get older, it's starting to, I'm losing it. But there was something he said about, you know, and of course, Baldwin was trained to be a preacher and, and um, left the church, uh, obviously, but he, uh, he had something where he talks about, you know, if God cannot make us freer, um, or, or greater, uh, than we are, then it's time we get rid of him, you know? And ultimately mm-hmm. it was saying that God is, is, is a, is a mechanism to liberation or freedom. And if, and if it isn't, if God isn't that, then there's no function or purpose, right? That that's right. the purpose of, of God. I love it. I could, I could talk all day with you, Tim. Same. Well, once we get out of, uh, uh, lockdown, we'll do that in person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Tim, uh, I know our listeners that that aren't aware of your work or just now in the last hour become aware of your work are going to want to know how to follow you, how to be in touch. You want to share with folks what the best way to engage with you online might be? Yeah, I think the best way is is uh, probably via Twitter. You know, it's I've sort of migrated most of my social media uh, to that, I'm not a good enough photographer for Instagram, and, and I uh, and and Facebook is just awful in a million different ways. I still do have you know Facebook stuff as well, but but uh, Twitter's probably easiest. So it's at Tim Jacob Wise, uh, where folks can follow me. And then I also my articles and essays I publish them at Medium.com, and you can search under my name at Medium.com. I think it's Medium.com forward slash Tim Jacob Wise or something like that. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then I've got my, you know, my website, I have timwise.org, which I haven't updated in quite a while, but then also have, uh, my Patreon page where I have podcast, uh, commentaries, audio commentaries, bonus content for people if they're interested in that. And I think those are the, the best places. I do have a, a new uh, essay collection that'll be out in December, which will be, um, mostly previously published, but somewhat reworked essays going back to the night of the Obama election in 08 up to the present and sort of looking at the arc of the last 12 years mm-hmm. as it relates to race. Cause you know, as you know, a lot of stuff has happened. That book will be out in December. It's called dispatches from the race war and it's from city lights in San Francisco. Great. Excellent. Well, friends, um, like Robin said, we could talk to Tim for another hour, but we will um, move on to next week and see you then. Um, we're really grateful that you took the time to share this hour with us. A reminder, you can engage with Robin and I on any of the social media channels at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a tea. 
Um, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, we would love um, any support you're willing to offer us. Um, you can do that at kindful.activisttheology.com. And until next week, Dr. Robin, we'll do our best to put out the fires in the world. Yeah, I just want to give a quick shout out to Karen Kessler, who has been giving to our podcast. Karen, if you're listening, you're helping this podcast um, in more ways than you know. And to Jamie Birdline, who continues to give on a sustaining level. But yes, until next week. Figure out how to get your hands dirty, friends. Let's get free. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>